Hey, how many of you know what an Ebenezer is? You will after today. Take your Bibles, please, and turn to 1 Samuel chapter 7. We are cutting into our First Things series today for one week due to Thanksgiving. We will continue the series next week, actually conclude the series next week, and then we'll go into a four-week Christmas series starting December 3rd. But this morning we're going to read 1 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 14. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son to keep the ark of the Lord. For the day, from the day that the ark remained at Kiriath-Jerim, the time was long. It was 20 years And all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your heart, remove the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your hearts to the Lord and serve him alone, and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the sons of Israel removed the Baals and the Ashtoreth and served the Lord alone. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. They gathered to Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said, There, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the sons of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered to Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the sons of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Then the sons of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it for a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now Samuel was offering the burnt offering, and the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a great thunder on that day against the Philistines and confused them so that they were routed before Israel. Then the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and named it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more within the border of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron even to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. So there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. And Lord God, we thank you for your word this morning. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Now, for a long time, I thought that an Ebenezer was some sort of musical instrument or something like that. It's a Hebrew word found three times in the Old Testament. It means a stone of help. In 1 Samuel chapter 7 and verse 12, Samuel took a stone... And he named it Ebenezer. He commemorated God's helping the sons of Israel to defeat their enemies in battle. They praised God for who he is. They remembered 
what God had done. They thanked him. Now that's the conclusion. That's the bottom line on top. But how do we get there? Now suffice it to say, as we go back and look at what happened with Israel, it is a great, awful, wonderful, frightening, happy, sad story. It's full of twists and turns. It's full of sin and consequences. It's full of mistakes and victories. A lot like our lives. Now, looking back, we see God's hand was at work among his people. If you think about the book of 1 Samuel, Samuel is called as a prophet. He is born to Hannah, who had cried out to God for a child. And Samuel becomes a prophet. And Eli and his sons, his evil sons, Hophni and Phinehas, uh, Eli uh, was the priest, his sons, these uh, evil young men, whom God judged, and he told Eli that judgment would be coming upon his house. He told him through Samuel. All Israel knew that Samuel was confirmed as a prophet of God. And what happens next is that Israel goes out to battle against the Philistines. And they figure that if they just have the Ark of the Covenant with them, as some sort of you know, good luck charm, they would win. If only they could have the ark with them, they would win. So they take the ark, and the ark is captured by the Philistines. The Philistines capture the ark of the covenant. And God is angry. In fact, they had put the ark of the covenant in the house of Dagon, their false god that they worshipped. And one day, the Philistines came in, and Dagon's head was on the ground, and his arms were cut off. And they set him back up, and it happened again. The hand of God the scriptures tell us, over and over again, was heavy against the Philistines because they had the ark. And so they, they figured it out. They said, we got to get rid of this thing. And they put a, a, a guilt offering to God within the ark. They put five golden tumors and five golden mice. And they put it on a brand new cart. And they put two oxen that had never been yoked. And they sent the ark away. And the ark... Left and they, and they followed the ark. The five lords of the Philistines followed the ark to see where it would go. And it went up to Beth Shemesh. And there were some, some people of God that were glad to see the ark when it was carried into their territory. There were some, some men of Beth Shemesh that saw that. They were out in the in the fields, the Levites take down the Ark of God. They see the articles of gold. and The reason we know they saw them is because God struck down 50,070 of them because they had looked inside the Ark. This is the situation that was going on. And so finally, the people of Beth Shemesh say, we've got to get rid of this Ark too. Let's give it to the men of Kiriath-Jerim. And so they did. And it stayed in the house of Abinadab 20 years. They didn't take the ark back up to Shiloh, where the tabernacle was at that time. They took it along the way, but it stopped at the house of Abinadab, and it stayed there for 20 years. To be sure, they they consecrated uh, Eleazar, the son of Abinadab, to be the keeper of the ark for 20 years. And we read that the house of Israel lamented after God. 
in chapter 7, verse 2. Now, the cities were in ruins. They were under Philistine control. Their armies were defeated. It was all because they weren't right with God. They had the ark back, but things weren't right. And so in verse 3, we see that Samuel spoke to the house of Israel. He was known as their prophet, and he was their last judge. And he says in verse 3, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, and if you put away your foreign gods, God will help you. Samuel called upon the nation to repent. He asked them to repent inwardly. He said, he said return to God with all your hearts. And he asked them to repent outwardly. He said, put away your foreign gods. You see, inner repentance is a hidden thing. People can't see it. We can't see another person's heart. But we do know when we see evidence of inward change in outward behavior. And it would be clear that Israel returned to God if they put away the foreign gods. And Samuel says, and not only that, but serve God alone. He says that in verse 3. Now, Israel may not have felt like they were rejecting God completely. Maybe they felt that they had, were just adding to their worship by worshiping these other gods. But Jesus said, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Israel was in bondage. They were actually in, in double bondage. They were in bondage to the Philistines. They were also in bondage to their false worship that drained the very life out of their hearts. Things were not good. Time and time again. And it was due to their sin. But even so, you can see God's hand of faithfulness among them. Preserving them. Providing for them. And being patient. Bearing with them. But Samuel calls the nation to repent. And God's people responded. God's people responded to him. What did they do? Basically, the first thing they did was return to God. They returned with their whole heart to God. Now, they needed to. In, in verse 4, we read that the sons of Israel put away the Baal and the Ashtoreths, and they served gods only. Now, they served God alone. Baal and Ashtoreth were popular among the people of Israel. Uh, Ashtoreth was thought to be the goddess of love. Baal, on the other hand, was thought to be the god of weather, bringing uh, good crops bringing financial success. He was believed to be the son of Dagon, uh, the god of grain. And Samuel called them to renounce these false gods completely. Now he tells them in verse 5, gather everyone to Mizpah. Gather together, all of you. Now this was the place that Jacob separated from Laban. This was a place known for separation. This was also the gathering place of a repentant Israel in Judges chapter 20. It was a place remembered for separation, and it was a place remembered for repentance. And Samuel says to them, gather, and I will pray for you. I'll pray for you. Samuel had called the nation to repentance. They had begun to do so. But Samuel knew that the work God was doing in them could only be accomplished through prayer. And so they gathered at Mizpah. We see in verse 6. And what did they do? They drew out water and they poured it out before God. What did that signify? They were showing the spiritual need that they felt. 
The, sig- the significance of pouring out water before the Lord was basically an expression of emptiness and need. They were, uh, in essence, pouring out their souls to God. They expressed the heart of Lamentations chapter 2, verse 19, which reads, Arise, cry out in the night, pour out your heart like water before the Lord, before the face of God. I don't know if you've ever been in that type of situation where you poured your heart out before God, completely vulnerable before him, completely honest before him, crying out to God out of your desperate need for him. That's what the, the sons of Israel were doing. But they did something else. They fasted in that day. They fasted and they said, we have sinned against God. What they were doing was they were expressing their sorrow for their sin by fasting. That nothing else mattered to them at that point but getting right with God. Not even their daily food. They also expressed their sorrow before God by confession. They admitted their guilt. They admitted their responsibility before God. They returned to God. Connected to this is that they were requesting God's help. They asked Samuel, they said, pray for us. Uh, Don't stop praying for us. Now, we ask people to pray for us often, don't we? Hey, pray for me about such and such. Sometimes we go and tell other people that we should pray for someone else, but do we, do we pray for one another? There are so many times when I have said to someone, hey, I'm going to be praying for you, and then forgotten completely until the next time I saw them. Here they're saying to Samuel, please pray for us. Don't stop crying out to God for us. Now, look at verse 7. The Philistines heard that the sons of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah. Now, when they saw a humble, low, repentant Israel, they probably thought they saw weakness. Now, they should have feared God-fearing Israel at this point. With God fighting for them, they were invincible. When they were on their own, they would just roll over. But with God fighting for them, they could not be beaten. But the Philistines came up against them. And when the sons of Israel heard, the scriptures tell us that they were afraid. Isn't that interesting? The Philistines, unafraid of a repentant Israel. Israel, repentant and humble before God, were afraid of their enemies. They should have been more confident in God. Both parties were wrong. The Philistines were wrong to be confident, and Israel was wrong to be afraid. And so they cry out to Samuel in verse 8, Don't stop praying for us. Now the last time Israel was in this kind of situation, that's when they figured that if they just had the Ark of the Covenant with them, they couldn't lose. Again, they treated it like some sort of good luck charm. Go over to chapter 4, verse 3. Chapter 4 and verse 3. They had gone out to meet the Philistines in battle. They were camped beside Ebenezer, a place. The Philistines were camped near Aphek. They drew up in battle array. 
Israel was defeated. And then they say in verse 3, let us take the ark from Shiloh that it may come among us and deliver us. Let's go get the ark so that it may save us from our enemies. But now instead of using the ark and trusting in the ark, they ask Samuel to pray for them. Look at chapter 7, verse 8. Do not cease to cry to the Lord our God for us that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Something had changed. And so Samuel, in in verse 9, takes a young suckling lamb, a baby lamb, and offers it as a whole offering to God. Doesn't cut it up, puts it right on the altar and, and burns it up to God as an atoning sacrifice. You see, Samuel prayed for them in light of God's atoning sacrifice. Samuel and Israel were saying, in effect, this is what we deserve. This is the punishment that should come upon us. Thank you, Lord, for accepting this punishment on the innocent lamb instead. And in verse 9, we read that the Lord answered Samuel. The Lord answered his prayer. This battle had not been fought yet, and it was already over. The battle had not even begun, and it was over. Prayer was the key. We know Samuel as a man of prayer. In Psalm 99 and verse 6, we read that Samuel was among those who called upon God's name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. They requested God's help this time. There's something else they did. It's connected to the first two. They, this time, relied upon God to do the delivering. They relied upon God to rescue them. Now, feelings of confidence can be deceptive. Previously, Israel had trusted in the ark, but not in God. Earlier, they were confident when the Philistines came upon them that because they had the ark, all would be well. But they were not right with God. Their hearts were not right. And they were defeated. Their confidence was false. Now here, on the other hand, Israel is fearful. They are sure that they will be defeated. They have no confidence in themselves. And they experience this huge victory. Huge. They are humble before God. What did God do? How did he bring it about? He, he thundered. He thundered with a great thunder. It's interesting. Baal was sometimes pictured with a thunderbolt in his hand. And here God is saying, I'll show you who the God of thunder is. God fought from heaven for Israel. Defeated the Philistines. It was God's doing. He sent confusion among them. He sent confusion to the Philistines and confidence to the sons of Israel. What else did God's people do in response to him? It's connected to the first three. They then remembered God's goodness. Now you come to the Ebenezer Stone. I'm sure it wasn't this small 
I did toy with the idea of, uh, you know, hoisting one of the big, uh, big rock from my front yard today, but I figured I might injure myself, so we're going to go with the small stone today. But they remembered God's goodness. Samuel took a stone, and it was most likely a, a large stone, and he named it Ebenezer. He said, thus far God has helped us. Uh, Ebenezer literally means stone of help. And he said, God has helped us. You see, the nation needed to remember this amazing victory. They needed to remember because they were so apt to forget. The battle was won by God, not Israel. Ebenezer, the stone of help. God, their rock, had helped them. God had done it. Now, thus far the Lord has helped us can mean two things. It can mean God has helped us to this point in time. Or it could mean God has helped us to this geographical place. Both might be intended because Hebrew writers loved using double meanings. Whatever the case, Samuel knew that God had done a great work, yet he knew there was more to come. He knew there was more to be accomplished. This was not the end of the road for Israel. We know that. This was not you know, the... the uh, the ending place, and all would be well to the end of time for them. Twenty years earlier, they had suffered a huge defeat at Ebenezer, at the same place, in chapter 4 and verse 1. They surrendered the Ark of the Covenant there. And now this place would be remembered for good. The cities that the Philistines took were returned to Israel, The people enjoyed peace for a while. That's the story. The story of God's hand of blessing upon his people at that time. Now let's talk about us. What about us? We are susceptible to doing the same things as we know that Israel did. When we find ourselves going the wrong way, going after false idols in our culture, What do we do? We must take the steps that Israel took. First, we need to return to God in repentance and and confession. We need to admit to God that we have sinned. And we need to seek his forgiveness based upon what Jesus did on the cross for us. We are forgiven because of the punishment that Jesus took. That his blood cleanses those in Christ. But this idea of confession is is vital to our relationship with God. Confession is indispensable. We need to confess every sin God makes us aware of. So that our relationship with him and with others is not hindered. See, Israel showed this desire for repentance by putting away the bad and by seeking the good. Now, it's not enough to merely experience conviction of sin. For believers, the Holy Spirit convicts us of our sin. But it's not enough to stop there and say, wow, I'm I'm really convicted of my sin. Recently, I was convicted of a certain sin, oh, about a month or so ago. And it was one of those innocuous things where I hadn't been aware of it. 
And it was a situation where I had been unfair. In my, in my mind, I had been unfair to a coworker years ago. And this coworker is now serving in France. And I figured, how am I going to, you know, deal with this one? And he and I are, would be considered friends. And I didn't want to do it. I didn't, I didn't want to send him an email. didn't want to get him on the phone. And I put it on my to-do list. I had it on there every time I opened up my to-do list, and I saw it. But every time I saw it, I thought, maybe tomorrow. And, oh, last, probably last, I don't remember what day it was, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, about a week ago, I finally, uh, I got an email from them that was the, you know, the flash, uh, you know, out to the crew of supporters and what have you, and I said, uh, well, there's another reminder. And so I sat down at my computer for a while and wrote and rewrote and wrote and edited and went back and said, no, be more honest, be more honest. And the cool thing about it, well, the scary thing about it was I, I'm really careful about, about what I put on emails. And I thought, as I was sending it, I thought, what if this goes to the whole, you know, shooting match? What if it goes to the whole group instead of just my, my friend? And uh, I had that thought and... Um, I actually ran into someone the next day who is on the list as well. And I said, hey, did you get the, letter, uh, the email from so-and-so? Oh, yeah, I read that. That was good. Did you get anything from me? No, no. I said, okay. <laughs> and then I waited. And every day I checked my email. One day, two days, three days, four days, nothing. And, and I know this friend well enough to know that all was well. So I got an email last, this last week. Just three or four days ago. And uh, I cried when I read it because he and I both, I think, needed to say the things we said to each other via email. The interesting thing was the, there was some repentance that had to happen on my part, but I was too prideful to do it. I just didn't, I didn't want to uh, for a lot of reasons. Now, the Holy Spirit's conviction comes upon our life for whatever reason. It's going to be our response to that conviction that makes the difference between what progress we make further or what hindrances stay in our life. Some people have never repented, fully repented of their sins. Uh, some have gone back into their old sins. Some have been caught in a love affair with the world again. But just think about it for a moment. Reflect in your own life. Are there any false gods you need to be rid of? Any man-made things that you're trusting? Any things you need to get right? What about us as a church? As a As a community? You know, it's interesting, when David was confronted with his sin in 2 Samuel 12, you know what he said? I have sinned. If it comes from the heart, uh, it's hard to make a better confession than we have sinned against God. And to be specific about it. And be honest with God about it. See, repentance ought not to be a foreign thing for us. It ought to be a way of life. It ought to be our lifestyle. We need to return to God in repentance and confession. We also 
need to request God's help in everything. Everything. We need to seek the Lord. And we need to devote ourselves to prayer. Not the token prayers. But prayers that are based upon praise to God. And confession of sin. And thankfulness and gratitude. And, and then bringing the needs before God. Isn't it easy for us to run straight to the needs? Gimme, gimme, gimme. It's really easy for me to do that. You know, Jesus Christ is the lamb undefiled. Jesus Christ is the lamb without spot. He will defeat our spiritual enemies. He has defeated our spiritual enemies. But we need to go and pray in light of Christ's sacrifice. Coming to God because of what he has done for us. Instead of what we think we have done for him or what we think we need him to do for us. We also need to rely upon God then to do what he will do, whether it's rescuing or revealing or reconciliation. God will confuse the enemies of our soul, but we can't go by how we feel, good or bad. We just need to humbly come to God and do what is right before him and others. Uh, Israel seemed to have more faith when they were trusting in the ark than when they were humble and repentant before God. But here's the thing. Little faith, little faith in the living God is far stronger than all the faith in the world in a lie. We need to trust in the finished work of Jesus on the cross in our place. When we trust the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world... We are saying, you took the punishment we deserved. And we also need to remember God's goodness. See, the most painless thing would be to take a rock and remember God's goodness. But Israel didn't just land at Ebenezer one day and grab a rock and say, praise God. It didn't happen that way. They were were messed up. And they finally admitted it. And they returned to God. They confessed their sins. They they turned from those things. They repented and turned to God. They were honest. Then they came and and prayed and, and, and asked for God's help. And then the deliverance came. And then they took the stone. I just want to take the stone. Write something cool on it. But there are steps. Samuel named that stone Ebenezer. They would remember. Future generations would remember. We would remember. You know, we need to tell the stories of God's faithfulness in our life. God's goodness in our midst. God's hand of blessing in the past and the present points to our future hope. Points us to set our minds on the things above, not on the things above that they're usually on. And we need to rest in Christ. See, the people of Israel's day, at that point in time, had peace. They, they, they had rest. They, they had calmness. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now we have that positionally, but in our condition, there's a good chance that you came in here this morning in survival mode. Overstretched, overcommitted, overworked, out of balance, and burdened and worried about a lot of things, too many things, distracted. You see, we don't rest. We worry. We often, though, seek God's hand of blessing in the midst. In the introduction of the movie The Treasure of Sierra Madre, Fred Dobbs, who's played by Humphrey Bogart, tears up a losing lottery ticket and decides to try his hand at begging. He's dirty. He's in need of a shave. And he approaches a man in a white suit and he asks him, to stake a fellow American to a meal. The man gives him a peso. Now he begins wandering the streets of Tampico, Mexico. And he runs into another homeless American. And they join forces. And they spy another man in a white suit. And not realizing it's the same man that he panhandled earlier, Dobbs asks him for a handout and again receives a peso. So Dobbs heads heads for the local barber. And he gets cleaned up. And as he's standing there in the street, considering his clean state, he again sees a man in a white suit. And he goes up to him and asks him for a handout. Now this time he is given two pesos and a lecture. The man says to him, earlier today I gave you money. While I was having my shoes shined, I gave you money again. Do me a favor, will you? Occasionally... Go to someone else. This is getting tiresome. Now Dobbs mutters an apology. He says, excuse me, mister. I never knowed it was you. I never looked at your face. Only your hands and the money you gave me. He was so focused on his need that he didn't see or acknowledge who was meeting the need. You see, we're so busy seeking God's hand and what he provides that we don't seek his face. We seek healing, not the healer. We seek blessing rather than the one from whom all blessings flow. We seek provision more than the provider. We live with a sense of entitlement, as if we need and and deserve All the things we ask for. All the things we want. Just give me what I want. No one will get hurt. We pursue what God provides more than God himself. We treat God like a vending machine. We treat God like a microwave. We want him to give quick fixes. A lot of us live our lives like kids at a party. When the pinata has been broken scrambling to grab as much as we can before somebody else gets it. And then we find it difficult to be content and thankful when we don't get our way. And we become blinded to our need to return to God and to live in light of eternity. To repent, to confess, to humbly seek after God. Are you like me? I think you are. 
See, I'm more focused on myself often than Jesus. More in love with what he provides. More enamored with earth than heaven. You see, we can't give God pure praise if other things are in the way. The cool thing is, our loving Heavenly Father is in process with us. And He is in process with us, lovingly ripping out from the roots anything in our lives that are not of Him. And He does that for our good. Hebrews 12 tells us that God disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. It is painful, but good. So as we close today, what's going to change? What's going to change for us today? We're all facing challenges to our faith, every one of us. As individuals, as families, as a church, you name the area, health, relationships, burdens, challenges, growing with grace, our budget, whatever the case, whatever you want to name. But we need to pray we need to trust God. We've got to go to the only one who is able. But more than that, we need to give thanks no matter what. No matter what. You see, it's, it's natural for us to go to God for deliverance, for help, for blessing. We need him. He's the only one to go to. But it's not natural for us to go to God in praise and thanksgiving out of the outflow of our hearts, out of the outflow of the life of Christ in us, no matter what. Like Israel in today's scripture, let's return to God. Let's ask for his help. Let's trust him. Let's acknowledge him. In this passage and earlier in the chapters in 1 Samuel, again and again, you read, and you see it in chapter 7, verse 13, that God's hand was against the Philistines. God's hand was against them. God's hand of blessing is on his people. Not because of them, but because of his covenant, because of his faithfulness, because of his promises. And through thick and thin, Can you see God's hand in your life? Can you praise him for who he is and thank him for what he does? Let his hand of blessing be the point that points us to our glorious future as citizens of heaven, not of earth. We are great debtors to grace, huge debtors to grace. We can raise up Ebenezer's, rocks of remembrance, remembering how God has led us. See, Jesus, Jesus is our rock. Jesus is our Ebenezer, our stone of help. Let's pray. Lord God, we praise you that you alone are the one that we can go to. 
and you have words of life and you give us life and our lives are wrapped up in you. And Jesus, you are our very life. We come to you today, Lord, praising you because you are good and kind and faithful and holy and right and loving and patient and beautiful. And we thank you, Lord, for what you do and what you are doing and even what you will do in us and through us and among us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we are dismissed today, I, uh, some of you may have seen, but there's a, whole, there's a whole table of rocks out front here in the, uh, in the entry there. And they're for a reason, they're for a purpose, and I want to encourage you to take to heart, take to heart what we're talking about here. I know the easiest thing to do, and the next thing we're probably all going to do is run to the next thing. And I, I wish we didn't always run to the next thing because sometimes we need to take some time and just let what we've just taken to heart settle in. But I want you to encourage you to take a rock. Please don't throw them. You notice I didn't give them to you before the service. And uh, take a rock. And here's what I want to encourage you to do. There's, there's some markers out there. It's on one side of the rock, Write down, write down praises to God for who he is. Uh, solely focus on his character. Then on the other side, uh, write down praising God for what he has done. All right? And what I want to encourage you to do is bring them back tonight to the praise dinner. Because we're going to use these around the tables during our sharing time. Okay? So um, please stand with me. I just want to read you one verse. In Hebrews 13, through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. God bless you.